0: From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Sarah Mead. This is your news for Friday, April 14th. I've always wanted to do that. (laughs) I have some very special guests in the studio here today on KZMU News, a special Radiothon tradition that Molly and I started uh, years ago, uh, where yeah. we, take a, we take a day uh, during Radiothon to celebrate the work of KZMU News, the hard work of News and Public Affairs Molly Mar- Director Molly Marcello and our new reporter, um, Emily Arnson. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: This is one of my favorite traditions that we do during Radiothon because I get to just like... Hurl compliments at the KZMU <laughs> news department for all that you do. Um, I know that we spend a lot of time during radiothon talking about what uh, what a gem KZMU is to our community, and it has been for thirty one years bringing the voice of the people who live here. KZMU is is sounds from your neighbors and, and musical medicine. It's been it's been talked about, but recently, you know, in the last four years, we've been able to bring. Um, Local journalism. Uh, Moab is a really lucky rural community to have two newspapers and uh, a broadcast medium for local journalism, and it's uh, it's really something special to have uh, rural stories that are reported on by people who actually live in the community. You know, KZMU doesn't play the news that. Is made from journalists that are coming in from Salt Lake City to report on something that's happening here and then finishing the story up there and then sending it down mm-hmm. to us. This is you too, Emily and Molly, um, in living within the community, being part of this community, and then talking to people within the community and the region to come up with what you do and it's come a long way over the last four years so um emily is a new member of of the news department um this is your second month
2: on the job third month second Uh, Yeah, I started in January, Mm -hmm. kind of. And it -hmm. It feels like you've
0: been with us the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But I wonder, um, I think it would be a really interesting thing for the listener to hear uh, your perspective. You have a journalism background, Mm -hmm. but this is your first time working at a community radio station uh, in a rural area. And I wonder if you could just give us a little snapshot of what that was like to get your feet on the ground and, and start making stories happen working with Molly.
2: Yeah, totally. I think um, I'm so grateful to have this job. I feel like it really connects me to the community here and I'm constantly, because of my work in communication with people in the community, I have to be abreast of what's going on and it makes me feel really connected and I'm so grateful to everyone who takes the time to share their stories with me and I I know that it's a lot of work for other people to I don't know answer my calls and whatever but I'm <laughs> I'm really grateful for everyone yeah in the community.
0: You bring up a really interesting point which is that living in working in such a small community sometimes it can be hard to Get both sides of a story, you know, without inadvertently angering or misrepresenting a certain perspective. And I feel, as the outgoing, but as the you know, since standing executive director and and uh, general manager of the station, I've always been really proud at how uh, how what a great job KZMU has done to do its best to represent all sides of a story and uh, bring a lot of ethics to the table and I and I think that that is like 100% due to Molly Marcello, our News and Public <laughs> Affairs Director and the integrity that you bring to KZMU News and you come to this from um, I think 7 years in journalism and that's then on t- adding on top of that another 4 here at KZMU or something like that
1: <laughs> You're giving me a few extra years but well, thank you I appreciate it. You deserve it. them. Thank
0: you <laughs> um, But you, you, know, you kind of helped Helped craft the KZMU news department from scratch, mm-hmm. um, and this is a, this is a, the time to reflect on that. Um, wow. Tell me a little bit about how, how it's been for you to to go from being a one person, quote unquote, part time uh, news director, mm-hmm. reporter, journalist, to now being the director of a department and having um, having actual people to work with uh, to share the reporting.
1: You know, I was actually reflecting on this this morning um, because I, I was considering um, doing another wild um, PowerPoint presentation for <laughs> our staff about KCMU News. I've done one, dear listener. Please do another one. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> yes. Emily heard it, of course. Yeah. Um, back in 2018, yeah, it was a part time news gig. And we were just kind of experimenting with doing a daily newscast. We didn't exactly know. Um, you know what it was going to sound like where we wanted to go and thinking about um where kzmu news is all these years later i am so thrilled like i feel like it's it's a solid department of kzmu it's no longer an experiment (laughs) we can do experimental stuff on the airwaves like we have been doing over the past um couple years or so but it feels really it feels really solid and it's so great to have emily in this position um as a host on KZMU News too. With this capacity, we're able to um, spend time on projects and stories that we want to go after and projects that we want to pursue as well. Um, Like Great Tape, which aired uh, this week, our second ever issue, which takes um, quite some time and energy, but is, I think, um, one of those community, only can exist on community radio type things.
0: That is such a perfect segue. Um, because I was going to ask you both next about um kind of what you see as being um, you know, some of those shiny points of of the the gem that is KZMU. It's it's not just a daily newscast. I mean, the you both have a daily deadline um to create meaningful, impactful, and relevant news stories for both local listeners but also like our pretty rapidly growing regional listenership contingent Mm -hmm. and our partnership with Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. But the KZMU News and Public Affairs Department is so much more than just a 10-minute newscast every weekday. There's these other ways that we're fulfilling our mission as a community radio station um, and then also the the news department. You mentioned your PowerPoint. The news department <laughs> kind of has its own value system and it, its own mission mm-hmm. that it's trying to fulfill, as a, you know, as a um, a function of community radio and grassroots radio. Um, and those things are, as you mentioned, great tape. And then also very recently, Lift Up mm-hmm. um, and uh, Audio Portraits mm-hmm. and Sonic IDs. Tell Talk a little bit about what, what these things are. If there was something that you could compare it to to give people, you know, some footing for what it is, talk a little bit about that.
1: OK, so, you know, these are all um, stories and projects that really, um, like I said, that can be done on community radio. We um, because we're not an NPR affiliate, um, we don't have to craft our stories in a one minute or four minute time slot as Mm -hmm. our NPR partners do so we have more freedom to explore Um, we have a flexible program schedule so lift up great tape audio portraits sonic ids all of those things are created with the community in mind and with storytelling in mind when we started KZMU news and throughout this whole experience um, I've always thought that the newscast should be adding value to our current media landscape You know, we have two great papers that we also partner with every Friday uh, for the weekly newsreel and do other things with them, too. And that was really, you know, an incentive for me to say, okay, well, what would add value to our community and what could we do as a radio station? You know, radio is something that it's not great at going like um, very wide, but it is great at going very deep because Mm. you can create man, I feel like the stories that I've heard on our airwaves that we're able to bring, like, I feel connected to my community, (laughs) bringing them together, just Mm -hmm. like you said.
2: Yeah, I think people get really excited when they hear their friends or they hear themselves on Mm -hmm. the radio. It makes people feel connected to each other here. I just, I love the quirks of this town. I love this community. I love being able to have the freedom like you were talking Mm -hmm. about earlier to sort of tell some funnier stories or some like, Maybe it's not news, hard news. But right, it's, uh, things that are happening in the community, and yeah.
1: exactly like, and we do have the flexibility, you know, especially if there's emergencies, like the Pack Creek fire, for instance. Yeah. We became a Pack Creek fire broadcast, yeah, and then we also can be flexible and tell those um, more feature stories, um, like Emily just did a story this week on the Jerp art cardboard car that went up potato salad hill and we had a very silly newscast last week where we had a grateful dead theme and that was kind of an experiment but flexible so
0: yeah and thank you Emily for for sharing that too it was one of the things I was so excited when um, you accepted the position um, because you have a knack for you or you have an ear for the stories that are um, unique And Mm -hmm. and being able to kind of find and lift and elevate those voices and those stories in a small community like ours, I think that is like the magic of community radio. That's the that's the point. You know, like you can find there's so many ways to access news at this point, Mm -hmm. both local, regional, micro, macro, but. Mm you can't find the sort of I, I keep using the term the horse's mouth and I there's got to be a better way <laughs> to say that but like th- that really is the beauty of of radio as a medium for journalism mm-hmm. and whether it's the quote-unquote hard news or the mm-hmm. just the community um, conversations and hot takes you know first impressions what what did you think about this or how long have mm-hmm. you been you know those are the things that really kind of um, root a community and make people feel like they belong to something and also that can build bridges between between neighbors who might not otherwise ever get to see each other we played a big role like that during the pandemic Mm -hmm. and I think that that tradition has kind of continued on and I also want to point out to the listener you know we ask you for money twice a year in a really big way and these this what you're hearing right now this is like your money at work um, the KZMU news and public affairs department has grown from a one part-time person thing to two full-time people working in the news department and bringing you a really diverse array of um, extremely high quality news um, that is like Molly said is we're not an NPR station we're not a college station we're just doing this as an independent community radio station for you um, and it's really something special so um, please do donate and help us continue this um, tradition for three five two five nine five nine six eight and uh i believe it's time to wrap up the kzmu news um i'm gonna play the the news outro the yeah. news theme and then do do you want to say the outro you got it you got it Sarah. okay hold on it would help if i can uh, doing turn, it live turn folks. the volume right
1: up. it's live <laughs>
0: And that's the KZMU news for Friday, April 14th. You can catch this online at kzmu.org or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Thanks Sarah. Thanks, Sarah.
1: The Moab City Council was in session this week. So, what happened at the, what meeting? Happened at the meeting? What happened at the meeting? What happened at the meeting? Whatever happened, what happened at, the meeting? at the meeting? What uh,
3: exactly happened at the meeting?
1: Maggie McGuire of the Moab Sun News answers. At this week's Moab City Council meeting,
3: council members approved consultants for the Walnut Lane Affordable Housing Project, approved plans for the Aggie Apartment Project near the Utah State University Extension Campus south of town, and approved a list of projects that will go to a state board for possible grant funding. That list of seeking funding includes water and stormwater upgrades, maintenance for local parks and a planned project to reconstruct Cane Creek Road. A public meeting to discuss details of the road reconstruction plan will be held on Thursday, April 27th.
1: And that's what happened at this week's Moab City Council meeting. You can find recaps of local government meetings at moabsunnews.com. And these meetings are on YouTube. Watch Moab City and Grand County, Utah there. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. A legislative audit examining compliance issues in both Grand and San Juan counties was recently released. The audit was launched just days before last year's general election. And as Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent reports... It didn't have a lot to say about Grand County. This is breaking news,
3: but it's kind of a long awaited story. Um, so, the legislative audit that was ordered by the Utah legislature in November of Grand and San Juan counties has come out. And the big news is that Grand County was barely mentioned. Um, and it was only mentioned actually in a positive light in this audit.
1: Okay. So, remind us about the accusations that were levied against Grand County or, you know, the reasons for the audit. This was happening during a election season.
3: Yes, um, there's quite a bit going on on Facebook that I I will try not to get too much into. But um, on the whole, I don't think there's been really any official reasoning behind why Grand County was included in this audit. I know there were concerns with two former, now former San Juan County commissioners about potential violations of the Open and Public Meetings Act after the former county attorney submitted grammar requests to I think both of those commissioners back in the fall and emails were released suggesting there may have been violations.
1: Okay, so who was doing the audit? Yeah,
3: it was the Office of the Utah Legislative Auditor General. It's a legislative body, but I think their managers are the legislature and the legislature can um, order them to conduct audits of not necessarily whatever they want, but like, you know, things that they seem as important. So,
1: Any findings to pull out um, that were highlighted in the Times and Penance coverage? The audit looked into these two former county commissioners, and it found that they
3: could not definitively determine that there had been violations of the Open and Public Meetings Act, but that communications absolutely violated sort of the spirit or the intent of the law, um, and at the same time raised questions. Their use of outside counsel regarding county matters raised questions of you know reducing transparency and opening them up to potential undue influence um, from other groups. Um, and again, Grand County was only mentioned in this audit in ways that San Juan County ought to emulate it, actually. So several of the recommendations. So the audit releases the findings and then provided several recommendations to the San Juan County Commission moving forward about different procedures that they should implement to reduce the chance that this happens again. And several of those recommendations were actually drawn from existing practices in Grand County.
1: So not only did Grand emerge from this audit, you know, I don't want to say unscathed, but sort of, yeah, unscathed, but in a positive light, I guess.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I watched actually, the audit was presented to the legislative audit subcommittee on Wednesday when it was released. And I I watched that. And one of the audit managers basically said that, yes, the original intent had been to focus on Grand alongside San Juan, but they'd only received documentation about these potential violations regarding San Juan County. So they ended up just, they didn't have any documents, I think, suggesting that there could have been a violation in Grand County. So they basically pretty quickly pivoted to just focusing on San Juan.
1: Okay. And like you said, they made some recommendations to San Juan County. Um, Is it too early to tell what they'll be doing with that information, San Juan? Um, Not necessarily. The current San Juan County Commission, all three of the commissioners
3: spoke at that meeting. Uh, You can watch this online too, and they all said that they will, they plan to implement every recommendation. Um, At the same time, they submitted a formal letter that was included as part of that audit report. So you can find that online as well. And in that, they thought there were, quote, like truly violations of the Open and Public Meetings Act, and they wanted further investigation. Investigation and they wanted charges to be filed if there were, you know, evidence found of that. So they took some a somewhat harder line. Um, interesting context. I mean, this audit... The um, fact that the audit was going to happen, that news was released less than a week before the November election, which I think is just notable because it was right before an election when uh, both of these San Juan County commissioners were up for election and, and Grand County was having its own election. And the audit was also raised by Representative Phil Lyman back in January as part of a potential justification for his bill, HB 416. He talked about the the bad optics of having this audit focusing on Grand County as a potential reasoning for HB 416. So I think that's really interesting and especially in light of the fact that the audit ended up not focusing on grand whatsoever.
1: Yeah, thank you for providing that context. I mean, it definitely seemed like the audit that it was happening was used as a political tool during the election season and also the legislative session. Thank you so much, Sophia, for that breaking news coverage. And um, moving on, what else do you want to cover today?
3: Yes, yeah, there is plenty in this week's edition. Um, Our main story this week has to do with Walnut Lane. As folks may know, Moab City purchased a kind of rundown trailer park on Walnut Lane nearly five years ago ago, hoping to replace the trailer park with affordable housing. Um, the project stalled about two years ago after the city's contractor, IndyDwell, Dwell, failed to secure a bond for the project. So it's been in just like total stasis ever since. But on Tuesday, City Council unanimously voted to enter into contract negotiations with a new potential contractor, um, Columbus Pacific. They're a developer based in Park City, and they've done uh, developments both for affordable housing as well as overnight rentals. And yeah, it looks like there could be some forward momentum finally.
1: Okay, so the city has officially entered into a contract with them. They are entering into contract negotiations. You know, that is really important, that sort of subtlety, because, you know, as as you know, and have covered at the time independent, this project has has, uh, been delayed for quite some time. So it is important to highlight that it's contract negotiation. And what was the discussion like um, at the city council around this issue? A
3: lot of what we discussed uh in our in our story was just the kind of emotional response of several city councillors um some of the councils of course knew and didn't necessarily have much to do with walnut lane but several of the councillors were i think there when the decision was first made to purchase the trailer park and i mean tawny newts and boyd talked about like how the project has kept her up many a night you know worrying if they'd done the right thing especially with the stalling of the project so i think they're all really eager to see it go forward. And hopefully we'll have more details about what this potential development will look like um, as negotiations continue.
1: Right. Yeah. Because that is the big question mark. One of the reasons it's been so challenging to develop this property is that there are folks living on it currently. And the city was very clear about not wanting to displace anyone. So that. Seems like that's going to be an ongoing challenge. I think so. Yeah. Anything else to mention from this story?
3: I think that we mentioned that at earliest, um, Shovel could hit the dirt in about a year in May 2024, if all goes well. So that would be really exciting.
1: Moving on in the Times Independent, you wrote about our weather. What is going on with the weather? Yes, I mean, it is
3: warm and generally sunny now. Uh, But as folks I'm sure remember, March was very wet and very cold in Moab. We had a lot of snow. We had a lot of rain. I think our average temperature was eight degrees below the average temperature of the last 10 Marches combined, essentially. And the precipitation was also something like 250% of average in the valley. Um, It was snowing, like, literally on the last day of March, I think. I talked to a bunch of local outfitters and businesses about their operations in what is typically like a pretty big tourism month, and basically everybody I talked to said that their operations and their pocketbooks were hit pretty hard. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, fewer people were coming out, people wanted to enjoy the great skiing. Um, But at the same time, a lot of these owners and employees expressed optimism about the tourism season moving forward and into the summer as spring runoff continues. So they're not worried about any sort of necessarily long-term impact, but it was interesting to know what happened in March.
1: And how did you enjoy digging into
3: the data for this story? It was pretty fun. I got to look into, yeah, some some weather data. Um, I talked to folks at the Moab Information Center about their visitation data. I looked at Arches' visitation data. And, and actually, what first tipped me off to the fact that this might be a story was I noticed that Arches did not close its gates for overcrowding until the last day of March, March 31st. And over the past two years, it's been much more common that they start closing their gates like March 10th or 15th.
1: Now, moving on, there's an article on the inside of the paper of the Times Independent about sand flats. You mentioned this last week about um, potential rate increases. And there's, there's more information.
3: Yes, I did follow-up interviews with Andrea Brand, who's a Grand County employee and the, the director of San Flats, and also with uh, Jen Jones and Katie Stevens over at the BLM um, about just like more specificity, because I think this kind of took a lot of people by surprise. Um, several notable things about the proposed increases. Um, they would not happen all at once. You know, there was a proposal, for example, to raise the um, annual fee from $25 to $50. Uh, but all these proposed raises are essentially giving San Flats the ability to to increase up to that level over the next five or 10 years. It's not happening this year. It ain't happening all at once. Um Andrea Brand said the annual fee increase specifically would probably be the last fee to be increased out of the several that were proposed to to rise.
1: Okay, so that's an important point to underscore that they do need to raise rates or entrance fees, um but it will not be coming all at once. Exactly. The only changes
3: that are likely to be made this year are the actual elimination of two fees. Uh, one of which is the $5 per vehicle trailering fee. That could get eliminated in the fall. And then also the, actually the day use passes could get eliminated, which means folks who you know previously would have bought those would have to buy either a weekly pass, which is double the price, um, or an annual pass.
1: All right. And any further information on why they're considering increasing these fees?
3: Routine costs is is the main issue. Um, they they cited several statistics about just how much wages, um, you know, not only like wages and salaries, but the cost of like cleaning out the trash cans and like mm. pumping the toilets, some of those costs have increased by almost 75% over the last five years, and they haven't updated their fees in the same amount of time. And Sandflats is completely self-sustaining. So the only money they get is from the money they raise. They don't get money from the BLM and they don't get money from Grand County, even though they're co-managed by those entities, which I think a lot of, I didn't know that going into this article. So I think a lot of people might
1: not know that. And the fees really are crucial for them to, to pay their expenses. <laughs> Sophia Fisher, reporter with the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. A Salt Lake City based collective known for its clothing and outdoor gear repair workshops is coming to Moab. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News tells us about it.
4: So, Enoch Sankata is the founder of the Reanimator project, and they call themselves kind of the facilitator because at this point the project is a bunch of different people. Um, and basically, this is a project that is now based in Salt Lake City and really emphasizes using sewing and biking as tools for self sufficiency. So, the whole point of the project is basically saying, You know, you don't need a car to get around places because we have bikes and you also don't need to buy new gear because there are already millions and millions of tents and backpacks and jackets Mm -hmm. in the world. Mm -hmm. And so why would you buy a new thing when you could just repair what you have? Um, So in Salt Lake, they've been hosting a couple... Like gear repair workshops where people can come and um, bring their beat up backpack and get a new patch on it or bring clothing to be repaired. And now this project is going on the road. And so Enoch and a couple other people, um, including two people who are doing sewing residencies, are biking from Salt Lake City down to Albuquerque, New Mexico and the full tour will take until June, and they just left on April 10th, but they'll come through Moab on April 22nd from 5 to 8 p.m. at Moab Arts, which is another repair event, so people can bring clothing and gear um, and get those things repaired totally for free, and they can also learn about sewing. You know, I've noticed that just
1: not even in our region, but like across the country, there has been more of an emphasis on repair
4: rather than buying
1: new. Do you talk a little bit about that?
4: Yes, totally. So Enoch. To sew when they were a kid because they were always really tall. And so they said they always had to fix up their clothing so that everything would actually fit. And this kind of kicked off this love of sewing as a way to um, modify reality, as they say. Yeah, so it's really interesting in that they're just really passionate about this idea of not having to buy new things. And even if you have a backpack that's really beat up. If you just combine the parts from that backpack, like you could take a zipper or a buckle or things like that and put it onto pieces of other packs and make something totally new from all these recycled materials. In this event that's coming up here in Moab, what can people bring to get repaired? Basically anything. um, Clothing and outdoor gear are the two most common things. So that could be like pants or it could even be tents and the team will bring all the other materials, like sewing machines and thread and patches and everything like that. So yeah, really anything, it's totally free. So the entire tour will take until June and they're biking the entire way. The whole team is, Uh, they have all their gear in bike trailers and they're also powering their sewing machines with solar power. So they're also carrying um, solar panels with them. Sounds like a fascinating crew of uh, repair aficionados. Definitely. I know. I think in addition to getting things repaired, I think a lot of people in Moab will be able to make friends with this team.
1: Does seem like a very Moab vibe. Um, Now, moving on to one more article in the Moab and these this week, you chatted with some folks who are, are planning kind of a big trip.
4: Yes. So Jason Ramsdell is a Moab local who recently retired from the National Park Service. And he emailed us the other day because he said he's planning on summiting Everest. And while he was doing one of his um, training hikes, because he's going on, he just left on his expedition last week, um, he bumped into somebody else, this other Moab local, who was... Doing the Moab Rim Trail the same time as Jason was. And the two of them were both carrying these really heavy packs. And Jason said, you can always recognize when somebody is training instead of hiking. So he could tell that this other person was training. So he strikes up a conversation. The other Moab local is Matthew Fleischman. And uh, Matthew says he's also training for Everest. Jason is astonished because what a small world. Two Moab locals, both doing Everest. He's asking more questions and the two men found out that not only are they going at the exact same time to do this expedition, but they're also going with the exact same guide company on the exact same expedition. <laughs> so they're literally going to be 10 mates.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. And they had no idea, but they
4: ran into each other
1: on the trail while training. Yes.
4: So they started training together throughout the spring um, and they both had this lifelong dream of summiting Everest. Jason is retired from the Park Service. Like I said, Fleischman um, is also recently retired. He previously owned the Slick Rock Campground. <laughs> so they've been training together. They left last week. Um, and the full expedition will take them until June because um, summiting Everest is obviously no small or quick feat. The expedition team is four people. So Jason, Matthew, a person from Iceland, and a person from Australia. And then a whole handful of guides. Um, it'll take from April to June because they're going to go up to base camp, which is at 17,000 feet. And that hike takes about two weeks. And then from there, Matthew and Jason will adjust to the altitude by kind of climbing up a couple more thousand feet and then coming back down and then going further. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they're going to wait for a weather window in which to break ground on summiting, which takes a few days.
1: You know, I know that the popularity of climbing Everest has made it so that there are more and more guide companies taking folks up, but it is you know a serious feat did they talk about all the training that's required to even
4: attempt it so jason kind of cheekily said the best way to get in shape to climb mountains with a heavy pack is to climb mountains with a heavy pack he's literally just been loading up a pack with rocks and heavy things um And going to the La he did the Portal Trail a lot. He did the Moab Rim Trail a lot. Mm -hmm. Anything that took him from lower elevation to higher elevation really quickly Mm -hmm. made it on the training list. Mm -hmm. So kind of funny to train to climb Everest when you live in the desert. But the expedition does include a lot of time for people to get used to the altitude, which is good because it's way different up there. Much different.
1: So, you know, you said these two mob locals left last week. They're, you know, beginning their journey. Do you think the sun will check in with them post-journey? Definitely.
4: Yeah, we'll keep checking in on them. They aren't going to have a ton of service at base camp, but hopefully we'll be able to talk to them again when they get back. Um, There's a lot that's out of control when you try to climb Everest, like, weather and um, mountain traffic, but Jason said he's really looking forward to the culture, being in Nepal, and also just the adventure of it. And then he said, it's not about the summit, really, it's about the journey.
1: And there is more in the Moab Sun news. What piece do you want to highlight next, Allie?
4: Uh, Desert Thread is a local yarn store on Center Street that's owned by two locals. Kathy O'Connor is one of them and said that they're bringing Stitch Night back. Desert Thread has... A bunch of events, like they do classes and they do some social events, um, but those have been paused because of the pandemic. And now this year they're coming back, which is super great for fiber art crafters and really anyone who's interested or anyone who's stuck on a project and needs help. Um, Kathy and everyone who goes to Stitch Night are really wonderful in helping out when you're stuck in your knitting. Did they say, you know, why they wanted to bring Stitch Night back? Yeah, so it's a really beloved event. So I've gone, Ginger Allen, who reported on this story, also went. um, And it's just really sweet. And a lot of people who go have been going to the event for a really long time. The store has been regularly hosting the event for the past 17 years since it opened in 2006. So it's a lot of lifelong friends who are there who go every week, Um, people go and, you know, everyone's wearing sweaters that they've knit themselves and they're talking about yarn conferences and different knitting tactics and things like that and so it's just a really sweet really popular event and now around 20 people go there's a lot of people who just pop in every once in a while a lot of people who go every week um it's extremely casual so like sometimes people only pop in just to say hi to their friends or others will stay for a short time but yeah there's tea there's yarn there's cow which is, it's just really lovely. Every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. And if anyone wants more information about Desert Thread or about classes that they offer, you can find that on their website.
1: Allison Harford, reporter with the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thank you for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.